five, four, three. And welcome back to Not the Public Podcast. I'm Bruce Dobigan. Uh, joined this evening, he's the man with the plan. Got the counterfeit dollar in his hand. Yes, he's Mr. Know-it-all. Stevie Wonder loved it. You're going to love him, too. Reese Dobigan joins us this evening. How you doing, Reese? I was doing better. I was just about to, you know, acknowledge that wonderful Stevie Wonder reference, and then you, you just uh, you called it already. You blew my it, moment. He's, uh, he's ageless. He's ageless. Uh, you mean, we made a big fuss about Prince when he died, and justifiably so. But Stevie Wonder was there with a lot of a lot of the same sort of stuff, even earlier than Prince. And you got to—I know he's part of my generation, but you got to give him some credit. Stevie Wonder is one of those people who, as soon as you hit, you know, thirteen years old, your parents were looking at you saying, "Stevie Wonder was a talented thirteen. What have you done?" Exactly. Finger finger popping time. That was one of his hits. We'll have to talk about that with Evan. We'll get Evan on one day. We'll do a three cornered one, and he can tell us everything there is to know about Stevie Wonder. You and I wouldn't have to do anything, of course, because Evan would just carry the conversation. I was going to say we won't get a word in edgewise, but we're here to talk about sports. Well, one of the things that you know with sports in the old days, you had the games. People won, people lost. You could talk about it, etc. And then, as we've gotten more and more evolved in terms of sports broadcasting, it wasn't just the games; it was a pregame and then a postgame, and then all sorts of other things came in. Drafts. We started broadcasting the draft, and now we're even broadcasting the lottery to decide the order of the draft. And uh, that was one of the things that happened this week. Now, with all the Canadian teams out of the NHL uh, playoffs this year, for Canadian fans, this was really, I mean, the biggest night of the year to see where they would draft. Would they be first? Would they be seventh or eighth or whatever would happen to them? Uh, And uh, listen, I thought it was a big night. And on one hand, I'm a traditionalist. On the other hand, I wrote the column for I Don't Like Monday, Monday, and I said, this was a big opportunity, as far as I was concerned, to do a production values and tell us more about this thing. It was half hour NHL production. It was it was grim. It was unimaginative. A bunch of guys sweating under hot studio lights. Uh, no context, etc. I was disappointed, and, and you know I, I hate to say that because it is only just a broadcast of a lottery. But I was disappointed. I have to say it, but uh, I, I hate to agree with you. Uh, it was it, it was a bit of a drop ball for me as well. You know, I, I, I'm the kind of person, I, I looked at it from the outside, I'm saying, we're televising the event just to know what order they're picking in. On the surface, fundamentally, it's not, not a great concept, to be quite honest. And in that case, I say, then go all out. Then, then make, it, make the pageantry. Go over the top a little bit. You know, you look at the NFL draft, and they've gotten to that point now where the pageantry is as much a part of the show as who picks and who gets picked and and all those things. They have, you know, Hall of Famers come back and announce the sixth round pick for the Oakland Raiders and that Ah, kind of thing. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. And so I was a bit disappointed. I mean, I think the NHL is sort of treating... You know the the, the all star fantasy draft and and the NHL draft lottery event. They're treating it like an old timey way of looking at the sport, where it's you just want to see the box scores. You might as well only look at the box score for who got their pick when. There's no reason to really tune in. There's yeah. not that much anticipation. There's not that much energy in the air and it was disappointing 
Yeah. No, I, I understand probably they're going to tell me, oh, well, we're trying to fit it into an intermission. The Americans didn't want a whole show. But to me, I, you know, if I'm watching this thing, I, every one of these teams, kind of, especially the Canadian teams, has a celebrity fan. Could they not have had some celebrities there? The GM sitting there. Gla- you, ha- you already hate the GM. He's the guy who got you into this stupid lottery in the first place. You don't want to look at his Jim Benning dumb face sitting there going like, I am not a clue. You know, gussy it up. Michael Bublé loves the the Canucks. There's lots of guys who love the Canucks. Bring somebody in that way. The Calgary Flames, the same thing. Bring some celebrity to it. And and like the NFL does, why not bring in, for all those teams that have the most likely chance of getting that first pick, why don't you? Why don't the NHL bring in their highest draft pick ever? The, if and if they've all had a first overall pick before. Bring that guy in. Have them in the studio. Yeah. You know, yeah. have that guy there. The last time the the Maple Leafs had the first overall pick, we're here with him now. They didn't do anything like that. They just had, like you said, it was like the scene out of Dick Tracy where they had mumbles and the light was up on his face and, and Dustin Hoffman was just sweating bullets. That's what it reminded me of. Yeah. Mike Shanahan looking there, uh, sitting there looking really uncomfortable they all yeah, just looked really uncomfortable brandon shanahan not mike shanahan who's mike shanahan did i say mike mike, mike yeah well he, he could have been there too the the, the 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 old coach or the coach whoever i don't even know where he is at the moment <laughs> mike shanahan he, he might have been the guy to bring in uh the other thing about it was that got me was it it i think i looked at the calendar it is 2016 and here's Bill Daly, in, and you were talking about old-timey stuff. Here he is with printed cards that he's flipping over. This looks like, you know, Gary Morse back into Trell the Truth in 1958 on TV, and he's flipping over the things with the logo saying, and the next one up, the New Jersey Devils. You know, it was just I, don't you have computers? I mean, I know they don't want to give away the event, the result and stuff, but why don't you have something prepared for each team? Right. One of the, you know, there's statistics that were coming out as I watched the event. People were on Skype, not on Skype, were on social media, and they were saying, well, for instance, if Calgary had won one more point, they'd have been the team that jumped up into the top three instead of Winnipeg. Or if Vancouver had done this, they wouldn't have dropped back or whatever. I mean, these are all things that are interesting and make it interesting. They did nothing to do that. And, yeah. you know, I, I know hockey's a conservative sport. I know all the stuff about Don Cherry, et cetera. But, yeah, I just I, I thought it was a lost opportunity. Uh, and it's not like they didn't have time. They had a whole month, virtually, to get this thing organized. They knew who the teams were going to be. They knew what the date was. Yeah, I, as I say, just to me, a, a real disappointment. Uh, and then the Leafs win it at the end, which I suppose – Made everybody in Toronto happy. I guess they had a, they had cars honking the horns and going up and down the street, down Young Street or whatever. Uh, good for the Toronto Maple Leafs. As time goes by, and, and I think you and I have talked about this before, but more and more people look at the soccer model and say, "Why are we Why are we rewarding these boobs?" Like you just saw the sixteen or fourteen worst executives in the league. Why are we rewarding these failures by giving them the best player, next best player coming up? Shouldn't the team that wins? Get the best player? Shouldn't that be the incentive? I completely agree. Uh, I would say that, that to, to be the devil's advocate here, the, the, the detractors against that argument would say, well, look at Leicester City. Look what they did this year in the Premier League. That's exciting. Cinderella story. They don't yeah. have to be the best. But here's the thing. 
That was the first time since 1978 that any team won their first EPL title. So it had been a long time since anyone had even had that kind of that kind of jump because right. at that point so many teams are established and they're basically yeah. institutions and you can't knock them off the top. So the North American model of allowing the bottom feeder teams to build up and, and you know the parity it has its advantages, but not when these teams seem to be perennially in the bottom five and they can't do anything right. Then well, it's, Frank, it's it's yeah. the saying you don't help uh, the hopeless, you know, help the helpless. Yeah. And this is this is not what they're doing. They're trying to help the hopeless. Yeah, and they are hopeless. I mean, uh, this is kind of 1960s uh, sort of American version of, of, of industry, which is franchise. This is the franchise model gone completely astray. And, you know, I, w- I would only say you're talking about how rare it is for any anybody to, to get up into the premiership and win the way Leicester City did this time around since, what did you say, 79 was the last time? It was 78. 78 was the last time. And, and yeah, you know, I suppose we'd like to see up other people up at the top. On the other hand, you know, who would you rather see come through through your big, the, the arena to play this week? Do you want to see Bruce Springsteen come back? Or do you want to see some guy who's kind of, you know, used to play in, in Springsteen's band and who's not that the, interested? The only time it's you want to see Leicester. Yeah, the only time you'd want to see Leicester City this year was this year. Yeah. During the last third of the year when it was like, uh, they might actually do this. Every other season, you don't care about Leicester City. It's a star-driven system. Exactly. We want to see the best players. We want to see them on fewer teams. We want to see more games that mean something. I mean, watching watching the the, the Nashville Predators playing uh, St. Louis or whoever it is in this series. You know, teams with no tradition together. It's it, yeah, the hockey's good. That's all and right. Nashville's got a deep and long NHL history there. Exactly. I'm, I'm almost all of it losing. <laughs> uh, granted, Pittsburgh and, and and the Pittsburgh series. That's interesting against Washington. But why? Because we two have two superstars. If only they would sort of. You know, I, I don't want. I don't want to belabor it. It, it, it's, it's a lost opportunity. The, the lottery was a lost opportunity. And the NHL needs to be different and think differently. And all they're doing here is thinking the same as everybody else. They look at the NFL. They look at the NFL draft, which conveniently had just been before this. And say, I guess that must be what we got to do. And it, it, to me, it's a lost opportunity. Be the different guy. Mm-hmm. Be, the, be the guy who does something different and takes a different approach. Sure. Agreed. Here, here. So what do you think of the, the NFL draft? Now that I've mentioned it, I brought it up. What's what's your highlight from the NFL? Obviously, you're going to talk about your Bears, and everybody listening is going to fall asleep. But give us your highlight of the, the draft. What what sort of stuck out for you? I, I think the thing that, that jumped out to me with the NFL draft this year was the sheer amount of trading. In, in a year where it seemed that most people agreed it was a pretty deep draft, there was a lot of teams jumping up to try and grab a guy at the very top at the very well i mean throughout the draft i mean there were teams jumping in um you know on the on the bottom half of the first round you know jerry jones admitted they tried to jump into the bottom half of the first round to get paxton lynch um there were a number of teams that were every single day like at the end of thursday the, the, a lot of headlines were teams trying to trade with the Browns for the first pick of the second round. And then at the end of the next, teams trying to trade with the Browns for the first pick. So it just seems like a lot of teams are trying to trade up. 
Uh, most especially, like you said, at the top of the first. Uh, a lot of those trades had already happened. But it was just kind of interesting that so many teams seem to be making that commitment because we've reached that point where a lot of people agree the best approach in the draft is taking the best player available. Hence, trading up to get a guy is essentially admission that the guy we're going to take is going to be the guy. We're going to hit on this guy. They're committed to him. They're committed to him. So I found that really interesting. Yeah. And also uh, Ezekiel Elliott at four, I would have to say, was also kind of interesting to me in terms of a player-specific pick. But that's you know that's that's what the dynamic of the draft where these guys just sort of let emotion take over. There was a, there was a graph, uh, some a, a story I think the day after the draft, after the last day of the draft, and it was comparing I think the top first round this year with the top round three years ago, and the th- third year guys are going to the last guaranteed year of their entry-level contract. And it was talking about how many of the guys from the draft three years ago, first-round draft picks, are guys who are highly unlikely to get re-signed by their teams that are now considered disappointments. Mm -hmm. And yet you see guys like Jerry Jones can't help himself, got to make news, got to jump up, got to be there and and, and try to get up there. And it so rarely pays off that that kind of strategizing works. I think as much as anything, the Ezekiel Elliott pick was just, it was kind of like, why have you been investing in your offensive line for the last number of years, the amount of money you're putting into it, yeah. to then invest a fourth overall pick in a running back? Yeah. I mean, I get it that you're you're basically saying, we expect this guy to be a superstar behind this line. Darren McFadden was actually statistically one of the better running backs over the second half of last year because he was running behind that offensive line and he was healthy. So it was just, it seems like Jerry wants to play fantasy football. (laughs) He doesn't really want to build a roster. He doesn't want to build a roster of players and role players. And, you know, this is, this is how things are going to work when they had DeMarco Murray. Great example. He wasn't a first-round pick. Uh, he wasn't a second-round pick. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's a third-round pick. Yeah, I think so. So w- Jerry thinks, oh, we're going to get the next DeMarco Murray by picking Ezekiel Elliott. Well, you probably could have grabbed the next DeMarco Murray in the third round again. So I don't uh-huh. understand why they would take that pick, especially because their defense needed so much help and has been so poor at the safety position, and Jalen Ramsey was sitting there for the taking, and they skipped him and took the running back. Now you can you can understand, I suppose, the quarterback thing. They talk themselves into quarterbacks, etc. But with so much of the league this year in that in that middle part of the first round, in particular, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, everybody acknowledging that that's what you've got to do. That's where you got to go. There's Jerry still. Swinging for the stars, still trying to make the home run on a running back or whatever. Again, the quarterbacks, I understand. I don't think either of these quarterbacks is going to be that good a quarterback. I think they're both going to struggle mightily. I don't think they're anywhere near the guys uh, uh, from uh, last year. Uh, but, you know, everybody's trying to do this. And there's old Jerry, again, swinging for the— It's what, it's what uh, used to happen with Al Davis and the Raiders, that Al always wanted to make a headline— it didn't make his team better, but he always wanted to make a headline. So uh, to me, that's one of the great takeaways for me is just 
The, the, first of all, there were a lot of defensive linemen, particular defensive tackles. There were a fair number of offensive tackles. And people, the, the, the teams know it's not a sexy pick. Their fans at home don't go, oh, wow, you took Taylor Decker. I'm so excited. They understand that they don't, and they still did it, which said to me that these, these are organizations that are serious about trying to build a team the right way. I completely agree. Except um, for the Lions, who will always screw it up. Well, yeah. I mean, that's in their history. They have to screw up. If they don't screw up, they're not honoring the great tradition of Billy Sims and uh, uh, Charlie Sanders. Sanders and Barry Sanders. And uh, they had Herman Moore. I love they had Herman Moore there to uh, present one of the picks. And it was just one of those things where I was like... Yeah, Herman was good. And he was huge. Yeah, well, he was. You're talking about evolutions in football. Herman Moore was one of the first alley oop guys who would go up high and above the DBs, etc. And and that brought that sort of notion into the NFL. There were a couple other guys like him, but by and large, he was one of the first guys. I mean, the Lions' tradition is either we have the players and we don't have the coach. Or we have a coach, we don't have the players. Right. So we had all these guys like Kermit Moore. We had Brett Perriman, who unfortunately, I guess, is pretty ill, uh, according to what I'm understanding. We had Mel Gray. We had Barry Sanders. Even Scott Mitchell wasn't that bad. And we had, you know, Bozo Boy, Wayne Fonts as our coach. Then we might get a respectable coach, and we don't have the team. It's just, it's always that way with the Lions. But anyhow, somebody's got somebody's to lose every year, and it's, it's got to be the Lions. Yeah, we just talked about 30 seconds more about the Lions than I really wanted to on this podcast. Look. But you have to understand, I mean, we make we make losing into an art form. The Bears oh, lose. The Bears lose and it disappoints people and they get pissed off and yeah. they don't watch. With with the Lions, you're almost fascinated. Like, like the Browns, you're almost fascinated yeah. to watch and see just how they will screw it up this year. Now, that actually brings me to one of the, the other things you remind me of that fascinated me so much about this year's draft was what Cleveland was doing. Not necessarily... Still in the NFL? They are. It's, it's shocking. I thought that Ohio Just State was barely. getting called up. You know, they were getting relegated. Ohio State was getting called up. But uh, Cleveland, I, I think, did a masterful job. Um, not necessarily be, with this draft, but they essentially have a full two years worth of draft picks next year because of the amount of trading down and stockpiling draft picks. Yeah. The way they were trading, I mean, it's – you can't ever say like, hey, if next year the draft class overall isn't that great, then what? Then what's the point? But what something like, for instance, New England has done for years is if they have a first-round pick, uh, two first-round picks, they'll trade that first-round pick, get out of the first round that year for a first-rounder the next year – and stockpile extra picks for that current year. Because teams are constantly treating current draft picks uh, or future draft picks like like nothing. Like they, they treat it the way people use their credit cards. They're like, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend I'm gonna max out my credit card because uh, I don't need to pay it off right now. And so people are willing to trade a first round pick next year for like a late first round pick this year, uh, and the Browns are saying, "Bring it, please. We'll take your first rounder next year, uh, and then we'll have two, and then we'll have two twos, and then two threes." I, I just think that what they did this year in terms of stockpiling and preparing themselves um, for for next year's draft and even the 2018 draft was really quite smart. 
Um, it, you know, maybe credit got, has to go to uh, Di Podesta, who of course is the money ball guy. I don't know. Maybe he's on to something. Because but now you got to coach him up. Now you got to have the right coach and coach him up properly. Because let's face it, the New England Patriots have never been a star system. They have one guy who's a star, and everybody else is a role player who fits in around them. Yeah. And the Brownies, for God bless them, the Brownies, they still don't have that main guy. The Browns still don't have that main guy, that quarterback, that leadership guy. And so they will surround whoever they've got this year with a bunch of spares and, and young guys and all that sort of stuff and hope that the quarterback thing solves itself. But uh, Cleveland is just, you know, they're – it, 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 they're the Edmonton Oilers of the NFL. That's that's about the best way I can say it. I like Hugh Jackson, and I like Dee Podesta and, and, and what he knows. Uh, but until I see the team on the field and, and, and they look like they know what they're doing, I'm not going to make any, any judgments on them. Yeah, I can't argue with that. It's uh, The proof is in the pudding, as they say. I think I, I wondered too when I was watching the draft. I didn't hear a lot of it. I was watching a lot of lip flap. I was in Montana this weekend, so I was hey, catching well, a lot. John Gruden, man. Hey there, man. Hey, you know, this kid's going to be playing, man. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Well, I play for my brother's team. Hey. <laughs> and now they didn't even ask him what he's going to do without Tariko. I mean, you know, he's going to have to have a new guy in the booth with him. It's, anyhow, uh, so I didn't hear a ton of, of of what people were saying. It was a lot of lip flap and, and watching the thing. I did hear a lot of the booing, though, for Roger Goodell. And I, I just have to wonder how much longer the NFL owners think, you know, we're paying this guy $44 million. He gets booed everywhere he goes. Most of the stuff he's done of late, including the Brady thing, has not worked out for us. You know, at some point, we, there's got to be a guy who we can get for half this money who can do the job better and who everyone doesn't hate with a vengeance. At a minimum, yeah, I would say that the the PR hit of hiring just a fresh guy who has no track record of being disliked by the players, no track record of being disliked by the public, I mean, there would be a benefit to that. Because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people, I think, put, put too much emphasis on Roger Goodell's, um, or they, they, they think that he's more powerful than he is, but right. he's not. He is an employee of 32 people, the 32 guys who own NFL teams. That's who he works for. And so if they can – it's America. It's the world. They can find another guy who can work for 32 really, really rich dudes. Uh, I, I don't know. I agree with well, you. Well, this I, I, listen, I don't think it's easy to work for these th- those 32 guys. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think that they've sort of come to the natural end of it. And, again, why do you, why do you want anything that, that, that tarnishes your image and your sport? Mm-hmm. And, and the way the Goodell thing with Brady has played out, it's been a complete disaster. Uh, he, made, he made a hash of the stuff on, on, on the domestic violence stuff. Uh, it's it just, I don't know, it, it seems to me a time to, to, to turn the corner on the guy. Uh, at the end of the day, is, is anyone going to stop watching the NFL because of Goodell being there or not? Probably not. I won't. But, oh. but, but you know, it's just, you just sort of shake your head and, and say, what are they thinking of keeping around so long? Can't argue with that either. Here, here. Uh, one of the other things that uh, we you know, we talk about a little bit is is that quality of winning. And we're talking about putting together a team, how Cleveland is doing it. And I made the reference to what is New England. They're a great player, follow, uh, surrounded by a bunch of role players, etc. And And the thing that strikes me now that I've been covering this sports for 35 to 40 years, the thing that strikes me all the time is that 
idea of who can win and who can't win and how pressure affects teams, et cetera, and how, how basically they can suck it. And I guess it's a long way of getting around to, you know, it's painful to watch what the Toronto Raptors are doing right now. They're a t- they came second to Cleveland this year in the, in the uh, NBA East. They, uh, they were a good team. They blew people out. They were an exciting and fun team. But it, as it happened last year when they got wiped out in four straight games, they've shown up, and you can see they have got, like, a suitcase on their backs as they try to play. And, and they just don't seem comfortable with the notion of winning it. And it's so hard to watch, and yet it's it's what, what pro sports is about. It's that inner confidence that you can win. And I don't see that from the Raptors yet. It's, um, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame because of how that city has really rallied around the team. you know. And, and to their credit, they're uh, obviously... Most of the reason that the city of Toronto cares about basketball the way it does now. Um, it's because there's the Leafs. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The Leafs, the Leafs hold a, a large uh, part of the burden for how well they've been doing in recent right. years. But it, I look at it and I, I wonder if, yeah, if they have the horses, if they have, they need to have that legitimate superstar. Um, they're an example of a team that if they were playing in the mid aughts against, you know, like the Detroit Pistons era, they'd be a formidable team. They have a lot of guys who are upper echelon players and collectively are great. Chauncey would have killed them. Well, yeah, you know, there's no doubt about that. (laughs) But, you know, the Kyle Lowry's and the, and the DeMar DeRozan's and the Valanciunas's of the world, great players. But they're not elite guys, and there's something about the way... Well, this is their chance to show it. This is their chance to show it, but obviously they're not... I mean, they're not. I don't think they are those guys. They're, they're They're that 94th percentile that if they were just 1 or 2% better, you'd go, max contract level guy, no questions asked. But as it is, they're the guy you have to sit and debate about and talk about as whether is this is this a guy we want to give that commitment to? They're not a Lun James level guy. They're not. I don't even think the Kyrie Irving level kind of guy. Where it's it's tough. Like Kyrie, you know, Kyle Lowry has developed great, he turned into a great player. Awesome. Martin Rosen, he's developed great, he's turned into a great player. But have you turned to that guy where you're unequivocally we can't let this guy to town? Yeah. I don't know. The way they were shooting in that first round, the way they were shooting for most of game one uh, against the, uh, the Heat, it's a yes. struggle. It's it's hard to know whether this is the core of guys that is going to make that run ever. Well, you're going to get that. You're gonna, they're going to get their answer in this because they can't go three years with this crew if they don't find that way. And and the NBA, unfortunately. The NBA is a star-driven league. If you look at the teams that have won over the last 20, 25 years, almost all of them are star-dominated teams. The only team, and you, you made reference to them, the only team that wasn't that team was, was the Detroit Piston team that won and played well in the in the aught, aught, uh, decade. Uh, otherwise, it's been Michael Jordan's team, it's been LeBron's team, it's been uh, you know, it's been Dwayne Wade's team. Those are the guys that's been uh, Duncan and the guys down in San Antonio. It's, it's a star-driven league. And, and the, the Raptors have to find out if these guys are that guy. And if not, you've got to move on. There's, just, there's, no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's just the way the NBA works, sadly. 
Yeah, I think an, a really apt parallel for that is what happened in the NHL in Anaheim. Uh, you know, they let Bruce Boudreaux go, and during the press conference, um, the GM, whose name escapes me right now, Bob Murray. Bob Murray didn't say it was Bruce Boudreaux. We're looking for a new coach because he threw a lot of the responsibility on the players. Yeah, he was saying. Are these the are the players have to be the ones who make it happen? And in Toronto, we're reaching that point. They've already gone through, uh, you know, they went through uh, uh, Kevin Casey or um, sorry, his name escapes me. Dwayne Casey. Dwayne Casey. They went through Dwayne Casey and they did great, but ultimately not well enough for him to keep his job. And now they're getting to that point where you have to wonder: Are they going to get this coach fired? Are, it's maybe it's because well, it is Dwayne players. Casey's the coach now. Yeah, who was the coach prior to that? Mitchell, Sam Mitchell, Sam yeah. Mitchell. I'm sorry, I got them mixed up. So it's easy to get them mixed up. With, yeah, with losers, losers. I tell yeah. you, they're losers. It's just a question of are these the guys who are going to get it done? Maybe the responsibility is no longer on the GM or the coach. It's on the players. It is on the players, but the players. Because of what they're paid, and not just basketball, but other sports these days, they're de facto co-owners of the franchise when they're making six, seven million dollars. We I had a long discussion today with uh, my, our good friend Perry Bears and former NHL player. We were talking about what had happened with uh, Bob Hartley and the Calgary Flames, and that Hartley had been a pretty successful coach for this team for a little while, and yet out the door he goes because. You have some of your young guys are about to come into the money for the big first money for the first time, and. You, you you get the sense that they don't want that guy as their coach. Now, Hartley brought some of this stuff on him. He's not an innocent babe in the woods. But these are guys whose agents are calling up and saying, yeah, you know, before we sign that bridge contract or that next contract, by the way, are you keeping so-and-so as your head coach? Are you keeping Bob Hartley or in the NFL or the NBA? If the NBA by the way, you know, before we sign another deal with the Raptors, uh, are you keeping Dwayne Casey? Because uh, that might be an issue. And whether the guy's a good coach, bad coach, coach or not, all of a sudden you've got a situation where, hey, we've got to get rid of him and put somebody else in there because we're paying so much to these other guys. They're like owners of the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, the, um, that's that threshold, that point in the NBA where if you have a LeBron James, you're golden. It, fine. Yeah. You let LeBron James essentially run the team because you're better off for it. You're better off that he's the most powerful guy. But if you don't have that level of guy, all of a sudden your team is being run by the Carmelo Anthony's of the world. And who really wants that? What team is really willing to put the keys in Carmelo Anthony's hands or Kyle Lowry's hands? You don't really have a choice. So you got to pay the. If you're going to have a superstar, you got to pay him. He's going to have the say, etc. And if he's if he's a, is a you know a moody guy that wants changes all the time, you're stuck with that. And you know you're looking at teams in pro sports, all the different sports, and you're looking at teams that just aren't making it. And Carmel, maybe one of the best brought it up of a team that's, that's married to the wrong guy. It's you know it's a bad marriage. He's not enough to push them over the top, and yet he, he he's getting so much money. He has a say in in the running of the team. They didn't discuss how they would raise their children before they got married, and it's falling apart. 
Exactly. They needed some counseling before they signed this contract. And it's that time of the year. NBA, NHL playoffs, lots going on. The Blue Jays are in trouble. Uh, lots of things happening. We're getting ready for the CFL and then the NFL season coming up this summer. So lots to talk about. And you and I will touch base again here when I get back from Toronto. This is not the public podcast. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and he's Reese Dobigan. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.